Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, two man car. My name of Paul Clay will be on in, in uh, third and fourth segment. Uh, he's doing some apostolic work right now. My name is Jesse Romero. <clears throat> For the first segment, I want to talk about the 12 days of Christmas. And then I want to move on to another topic. Uh, it's, uh, I want to talk about uh, Cardinal Gregory and his comments about the Mass, where he says that the Novus Ordo Mass is the dominant rite. <clears throat> so I want to take a look at that as well. So, um, the 12 days of Christmas, you probably heard the song before. It goes like this on the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree, two turtle doves on the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. Don't expect me to sing this because I'm not going to sing it because I can't sing. <clears throat> On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. You've heard this before. All of you have heard this. I've heard, I've heard this since I was a kid. I think it's beautiful. Well, <clears throat> we have an author here named Rebecca Evans. And she actually did some research on the 12 days of Christmas because, you know, the tradition is, is that this was used uh, centuries ago for, uh, to evangelize Catholics, to catechize Catholics with kind of the subliminal messages. So I'm going to let Rebecca kind of lay it out since she's an expert in this area. It's been a couple of years since I've talked to her, but I'm going to have her tell us about the origins of the 12 days of Christmas and then kind of the polemics behind it, you know, uh, you know, you have, uh, I think, Snopes and others that are saying, no, 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 this was never used before by Catholics. So, uh, Re Rebecca, welcome to the Terry, uh, I mean, to Jesus 911, excuse me, welcome. Uh, <laughs> I you're the expert. You wrote this book, uh, basically giving us the history, the backdrop to the 12 days of Christmas. So tell us about this, uh, why you wrote it. Then the way uh, Snopes kind of came after you and said, hey, this never happened. Catholics never used this to, to catechize. And then the the uh, investigation or just kind of the the historical data that that you've used to rebut them. Go ahead. I'm all here. Good morning. So glad to be here. So my journey with the 12 Days of Christmas began as a mom with three kids. And it started when I still have three kids. They're just a lot older now. <laughs> they have a lot more white hair. But they... Um, it started with a letter that came from our parish priest and we attend the Jesuit parish here in Phoenix. And it basically was laying out that the 12 days of Christmas, as we know, it was a code, um, during the penal years in Ireland. And I was so excited to learn that Christmas wasn't a day. Um, I just, you know, here we are trying to celebrate God becoming man, the Prince of peace. And our Christian culture now says it's, one day and the eight weeks before. And then on December 26th, all the Christmas trees are gone. Everyone's, you know, like breaking everything down. And in our, you know, our mainstream culture, we're not still celebrating Christmas. 
And so I, when I began to investigate it, um, I um, discovered Father Stocker, and he was a Byzantine priest. Now, this is, um, I wrote this book 12 years ago, and we, we spoke, in, I think in 2016 was our last interview. Yes. And, um, and at, at that time, we had just published the book, or it had just been published a few years before. And um, so I tracked down the Byzantine priest who, when he was doing his doctoral research at Georgetown, he found letters. And I figured out this was in the 1960s. Mm. So he was researching in the 60s. And um, it becomes pertinent later on in the story. But the title of his doctoral thesis was The Role of Byzantine Empire in the rise of the papal states. <laughs> and it actually ties to the 12 days of Christmas in a very like mysterious way. Wow. Um, yeah. And so he was just doing his research and he saw a book that looked interesting according to his testimony. And, and I have video of him on my website so people can go and they can listen to the extended video. It's edited a little bit, but not, you know, there's, there's two different areas where you can see him talking. Um, and uh, anyway, so, he pulled a book from the shelf and outslid letters from a Jesuit in Dublin, Ireland to a Jesuit in Douai, France. And they were dated. His memory was 1600s. Cause you have to think in the sixties, there were no small cameras. There were no photocopiers. There were nothing. The way you researched in the sixties was entirely different than the way you research now. And so he notated, he notated the, um, what was said in the letters and they put the letters back in the book and put them back on the shelf. <laughs> and I've actually spent seven research days at Georgetown looking for the letters yeah. and I have not found them there, but I believe they're still there. So if anyone from Georgetown wants to reach out to me, I got a mission, a little bit of a treasure hunt. Um, because, you know, our modern culture, which says I have to see it to believe it. They're not going to believe us, you know, that this was a code unless they, um, unless they actually see the letters, but you back it up. There's a lot of historical evidence to back up what he had said. The letters had said. So when I encountered those things, and it was basically that each day of Christmas, that there was a gift of faith that God's given us for each day of Christmas. So the three French hens was the Trinity. The four calling birds was the four gospels. The five golden rings was the first five books of the um, uh, Bible. The six geese laying was the six days of creation and, and so on. There's, a, there's, there's something for each of the days. But when you go online and you look, it says, oh, no, this is not a 17th century Irish code. It's an 18th century English nursery rhyme. And so and I would, I would posit that history is not settled yet. We haven't found the actual letters, but we found enough evidence I can now prove that the earliest, but people who say it's 18th century English nursery rhyme, um, they do it based on this book right here, which is a copy of like the first uh, um, appearance of it. And it was in a, uh, like a pamphlet called Mirth Without Mischief. And mm -hmm. it says that the song was first sung at King Pepin's Ball. See, it's right there, King Pepin's wow. Ball. <laughs> So when I went, um, so when I went back to researching it, I was like, "Well, who's King Pepin, right?" And um, it's actually very interesting because we know his son more than we know him, but he was in the 700s and he was called King Pepin the Shorts, and his son was Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor. 
So it all ties to the, you know, like the, the papal states and the Byzantine Empire. Wow. And, now, <laughs> and um, mm. so what was transformative to me in my first quest was, I guess this was about the time that Pope St. Paul um, had written, or John Paul had written the letter to the artists. And I thought, how? And I used to do catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which is, you know, Montessori based for children. And how can we teach our children this? How can we teach the faith? Because it wasn't like, it wasn't a, it was a code during a time when it was illegal to be Catholic. And not only was it illegal to be Catholic, you were hanged on and quartered if you were a priest. They had, there was like, there were laws against, uh, the penal years, there were laws against educating your children. There was laws against um, holding property. There was laws against just everything you could imagine. It's probably one of the darkest periods in Christian history because it was Christian on Christian, you know, and I picked up the book a few years ago because my research kept going, but it's the lives of the Irish martyrs, you know, and confessors. And I said to my husband, I can't read this thing at night because it's a firsthand, this was published in 1858. And it's like the firsthand accounts of how, how like the Catholics would be cowering in the church and the um, Cromwell and his army would just come in and slaughter everybody right in the church, you know, men, women, and children. And so it's just a these, very, very dark these were, period. These were the English Protestants, right? Like attacking yeah. Irish Catholics, right? Yeah. Okay. And all in the name of God. We got to keep that in mind. Right. You know? Yeah. It, it's dark. I mean, it's just, it's just very dark, but, and it, and really, you know, when I started this journey, it was like, Oh, I know. I went online after our parish priest gave us the, um, the letter and went to see if I could find any resources to teach our kids. And the only thing I could find was by um, two lovely Protestant brother, sisters who had spent a lot of time putting together an amazing thing about all these crafts and things you could do. And I was like, how are they going to handle these holy wars? You know, that's what it was. They called it holy wars. And I'm like, mm. that's like telling a modern day Jew that the German persecution was a holy war. It wasn't holy and there was no war. You know, it wasn't just, just not, you know. So, who, so, so who's been your biggest detractor, uh, Rebecca, that who's tried to take you on? Say, no, nah, I think Rebecca's making all this out of whole cloth. Who's been your biggest detractor? <laughs> whole cloth, little cloth. Um, yeah. Well, when I after I got in Father Sockert's interview, I went back to Snopes and I said, hey, here's the interview of Father Sockert. First person eyewitness testimony. This is what he found. This is admissible in court. You know, this is good stuff. And um, they wrote back to me, this was in 2015, they wrote back to me and said, um, he never produced the letters, which he never claimed to have. He um, uh, was never produced the letters, said that his notes were destroyed, which they were, because when I interviewed him, I traveled to um, upstate New York and I was there and he showed us this was the rectory that flooded. And I lost all my, you know, I lost all my, my library, his whole library mm. was gone. And um, so he couldn't point to that. And he also had a hearing problem. And I look back, I read the New York Times article from a long time ago. And I was like, I can see where the reporter and father were kind of going like this because of his, I think he was at his hearing. You talking know. past each other, huh? Hold that thought. Yeah. Back. I, want, I want to have it on for one more segment so we can con continue talking about the 12 days of Christmas. As you've done a deep dive into this, uh, into this topic. I want to pick your brain some more. You're okay. listening to Jesus 911. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with Rebecca Evans with The 12 Days of Christmas. Now, back to Jesus 911. 
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. We're back. Jesus 911, Jess Romero. I'm here talking with Rebecca Evans. Hey, Rebecca. She, uh, Rebecca wrote a book called The 12 Days of Christmas. She's done a deep dive into this topic of the whole history of how this uh, this came about as a tool for evangelization. Uh, Rebecca, Bishop Olmsted basically validated your claim, didn't he? You know, he validated, yes, he was very interested in the work. And actually, he was present the very first time we sang the song. I don't know if we got into it in the last segment, but what I did after I learned the history was I wrote a song, I wrote a book, and I created an ornament kit for families to you know, teach the kids when they were little. So the very first time we sang the song, he was present and he gave, it was very cool because it's kind of like an anthem to Christianity and all the different gifts. Right. Mm -hmm. And he got up and he gave an impromptu um, catechesis on the venerable college of England, which is in Rome. And he said the, the nickname for that school is the school of martyrs because for 100 years, almost Every seminarian that came out of that school was martyred in Ireland and England, and they were predominantly Jesuit, you know? I mean, it really was kind of the counter-reformation, you know, through the blood, through the blood of the martyrs. That's what's crazy about this, you know? And um, But he did, he was quoted in the National Catholic Register. I have his quote. Do you want me to read it to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So this is Bishop Olmsted. He says, the 12 days of Christmas have for centuries helped Christians to enter more profoundly into the meaning of the incarnation and birth of Jesus, Bishop Olmsted shared. The wondrous mystery of the Son of God becoming one with us in our humanity will always go beyond our ability to fully understand, yet it is not an irrational event. The simplicity of the child Jesus and the example of Mary and Joseph, the shepherds and the magi, invite us to draw nearer, little by little, into the beauty of the mystery of divine love. Isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like Bishop Olmsted. <laughs> yep. Doesn't, doesn't get stronger than that. <clears throat> yeah. Rebecca, t- tell us a little bit about <clears throat> uh, this, uh, again, the fact that you're so steeped in the history of the 12 days of Christmas. You're using this right now to kind of uh, do a fundraiser for uh, people in Bethlehem, for the Christians in Bethlehem? Yeah, how it came back, because this was like 12 years ago. I thought I was done with it. I thought I would, you know, put it all out there and be done. But then this um, this last uh, June, we were making these Holy Family ornaments to hang on giving trees. And the Holy Family Hospital, which is located 1,500 steps from where Jesus was born, is one of the primary works of the Order of Malta. And that's an organization that my husband and I serve in. And, um, in fact... Last January 6th, the 100,000th baby was born at the maternity hospital since Malta took it over mm. in 1989. And um, as we were, as I was, I was literally tying these strings. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> Put the little strings in tie it. I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, we could earn more money for Holy Family because now we have the tools to make everything available digitally, right? So um, we worked with Ambassador Michelle Bo, who's from the United States. And, and most of the funding for this hospital does come from the United States. People okay. were donating. And, um, and anyway, we came up with a challenge. And I have this thing. It's called Live the 12 Days Challenge. Where is it? <laughs> and um, for Bethlehem's sake. Mm-hmm. And so we made available. The, we took all the different products and went all the different platforms. And we put them together digitally and made it available. And then... 
a large portion of it's going to go to Holy Family Hospital to help support the hospital there. And, um, and hopefully, you know, my mission before we were doing it as a fundraiser was to transform families' lives because it really truly does change the culture of Christmas if you celebrate over 12 days and not just one day, you know. And, and you, can, you can segue Santa so easily. You can segue Santa to the sacred and you just go, huh, it's the second day of Christmas, you know, now that we're done. Um, with all the unwrapping fun, here we go. Second day of Christmas and just each day of Christmas, you focus just, even if it's your family conversation, you know, one person took the ornament kit that I created and they decoupaged little candles, votive candles, or here's one that's, that's a bigger one like this. That, and then during that. each day of Christmas, they had their children light a candle and then discuss the different gifts. You know, oh, today's the fifth day of Christmas. That's the first five, you know, books. And, and, you know, it, it worked its way into our family's, you know, just kind of celebration, but it's, it's very powerful, especially in our modern culture of like chaos and consumerism. And we're, and we're celebrating the, um, you know, the birth of God, you know, and the peace and we have to change. And I, I want to, I want to go back to something. I think I, I don't know if I sent it to you or not, but when they were first establishing the, the 12 days of Christmas as the holy days, they were trying to bring together the church of the East and the church of the West. And this is back in the council of tours, which was 586, I believe. And so they're trying to bring these two together and the church of the East celebrated epiphany as their holiest day. And the church of the West celebrated um, the birth of Jesus as the holiest day. And in their wisdom, they didn't eliminate either. They brought them together and they said, these will be the holy days of Christmas. So before they were known as the 12 days of Christmas, they were known as the holy days, which then became shortened to holidays. And it's kind of the origin of our word holiday. Right. Yeah. That's where the word comes from. Let me ask you, I got a couple of questions I want to ask you. Number one, how long should Catholics keep their Christmas lights on and their Christmas tree? Give us a date. Give us a marker because a lot of Catholics... Right after the, you know, uh, Christmas is over the next day, they're throwing everything away. How long should oh, Catholics continue celebrating? Give us a Well, date. at least at minimum until the Feast of the Epiphany. Okay. But I say, uh, you know, it's changed for me over the years. And it, now, now it's like, oh, really, it's the baptism of Jesus. And now I'm reading, maybe it's Candlemas, because that's like the last official, you know, which is February 2nd um, uh, holiday of the Christmas season. So you know, I mean, my mom used to leave her Christmas tree up and put Valentine's on it. So <laughs> it all depends on what you're, what you, but at least, at least the epiphany. And then there's all these traditions around the epiphany from house blessing, yeah. 12th night parties, King's cakes, just great things for our families. And, um, you know, I want to, I want to share something with you about, no, I, got, I got one more question real okay. quick before you share. How can people get your book, the 12 days of Christmas, if they want to get your book? Um, the actual physical book they can get um, on Amazon, and it's, and it's actually our father gave to us the 12 Days of Christmas. But the, the, when you get it digitally in the bundle, you get an ebook and you get uh, the, you can download it and print it if you want, and you get ornament kit and you get all. It's like it's it's like bundling everything together. But if they want a physical book or um, on our Etsy site, which is Catholic Smile, um, we have, it's not a book, but it's like a calendar. So you can just put out the information, you know, for, um, you know, so that you can see this is the, 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 on this day of Christmas, it's this, and then it just, you know, does that thing. 
Got Anything okay. that just helps you bring the dialogue back. As, absolutely. Uh, yeah, because like even in my neighborhood, I'm looking around. I think there's like, uh, you know, 50 houses in, my, in, in, in the HOA where I'm at. And, and and there's only about six of us that have a nativity set. So, yeah, yeah we, we, we've got to bring we've got to make Jesus Christ front and center once again, because a lot of people are forgetting, as the Knights of Columbus would say, that Jesus Christ is the reason for the season. Uh, yeah. Rebecca, I interrupted. You're going to say something else. Go ahead. I was going to say something about the epiphany, and that is that in, in the book, it's one of my favorite pages, and it probably comes because it was during like a period of um, pretty severe suffering for me. We had just lost a baby, and I was in the hospital, and I was reading the book, The Life of Mary Through the Eyes of the Mystics, and that was the first time I had ever read anywhere about that we all have our gold, frankincense, and myrrh to give to our Lord, and our gold is our love that we give to God and to each other. And our frankincense is our prayers and our myrrh is our sufferings. And I think it's such a powerful, it's such a powerful package for children and for adults too. You know, like we have these gifts, we can give these to God. And so that's, that's one of the catechesis things that's come up for me out of the epiphany. So the Catholics got to keep their lights up at least till the epiphany. You know? so. By the way, by the way, uh, if, 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 if Protestants, if they read your book, would there be anything that they would object to? No, no, because we, you know, like that's what, oh, actually that's one of the things that Snopes did is that they said, well, why would Catholics need a code? Because basically Protestants and Catholics believe the same thing, which, you know, to some extent they're right um, for the you know main things, but to some extent they're wrong. And, you know, when we, when we started this, actually, this is kind of interesting. I forgot to tell you this. When we started this project, I thought, okay, I have to put all the research I've done back online. And so I went into Wikipedia and uploaded the parody song that I wrote. I uploaded all the information that I found historically. Um, and it was taken down, like, immediately. Wow. And when we investigated, we found that Snopes had put a bot in there to remove all reference to anything Christian, Catholic, to Father Stalker, anything. And I've, I've gone through the process of, like, reaching out to Snopes and the Wikipedia, um, uh, what do you call it? It's when you have a disagreement and you're trying to work it out. And, and um, I was just checking it out yesterday and preparing for the show. And someone has uploaded something else that has more of the father stalker. They have a few things wrong in there, but um, it stayed. And so I was going to go back today and see if it was still there or if it had gotten taken down, but basically they're censoring any Christian, um, relationship to it and, you know when i reached out to snow surprise, surprise right yeah yeah there's... i thought they were legitimate i didn't know at that point that they were you know not <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're, part, they're part of the, the cancel culture left uh we got about a minute and a half rebecca is there anything that you want to say to the audience by way of uh yeah yeah i, I would love to say something well first of all live the 12 com is our website but then this is about santa claus and i had a war with santa claus in the middle of this but i don't anymore because i can see how you can tie it together and you think about St. Augustine's five attributes of God, right? He's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's eternal, he's all-powerful, and um, he's ever-present. And if you just think about the attributes of Santa, you find all five of those. I'm not saying wow. Santa's God, but you can trant, you can help your kids, you know, like just embrace our culture, but then keep taking it into our faith. Segue to the sacred. Yeah, you know? yes. I love it. I love it. Um <clears throat> Any other projects uh, in relation to uh, to, to this uh, 12 Days of Christmas? Any follow-up to this? 
Um, let's see. Any more books? Well, there's lots of crafts you can do in the ornament kit. Um, we have the, you know, like, ah, I have fun. I have fun things that people have made. You know, you just put it out there and they, and they take it and they just go. My my four year old niece made this, and my um, good friend Ian made this. So it's like, you know, there's there's lot to do if you're looking for memorable way to teach your children the faith. You know, get the just get the bundle and you'll have an ornament kit and lots of hours of memory making and fun and, and hopefully draw you closer, you know, Rebecca. Well, thank you very much. I also want to thank you for coming out with us uh, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, a bunch of us as Catholics, we went out there and prayed the rosary in front of a, a phony uh, drag queen Christmas mockery play. And uh, you went out there to, to, with your rosary and with, with a, with a heart full of faith and you prayed along with about 70, 75 other Catholics. So thank you, Rebecca. We'll have to You're do this again. Welcome. Let's keep I it. I love it. God. Thank you, Rebecca. God bless okay. you. Have a happy Christmas. Have a happy Holy Merry Christmas. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye bye. Jesus 911 up next. We're going to be talking about Cardinal Gregory and the dominant right. He says there's a dominant right within the Latin right. Let's take a look at it. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Hope you're having a wonderful Advent season and hope you have a happy, holy, blessed Christmas. Two-man car, Jess Romero, Paul Clay. We want to talk about the two forms of the Mass in the Latin Rite. You have the ordinary form and you have the extraordinary form. And um, Philip Lawler, a great Catholic writer, he talks about Cardinal Gregory Wilton and a statement that he just made a couple of a couple of days ago where he calls the uh, the Novus Ordo Mass the dominant right. So we want to take a look at this and I want to have a discussion with Paul Clay, who who's uh, one of his favorite topic topics is the sacred liturgy. Paul, let me uh, let me start off with uh, the first paragraph Cardinal Wilton Gregory told an audience at Catholic University earlier this month, he said this, quote, Tradition dies a slow death, sometimes a bloody death. He said that's close quote, earlier this month. Uh, Philip Lawler writes, well, if tradition dies, so does the authority of Cardinal Gregory. Yeah, because his office is part of tradition, the office of a bishop. Mm-hmm. I, I would just say, Paul, just... Cardinal Wilton Gregory, what he just said right now, goes mm. against the Word of God. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, oh, pick yeah. sta- I'm gonna pick well, a well, statement against the Word of God. Let me, but yeah, but just, yeah. Quick note: when you said that Jesus died a bloody death, mm. <laughs> just remember that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died a bloody death. In- and I notice tradition capital T. He said. Uh, well, uh, I'm sure you're going to give us a, an earful regarding that. <laughs> yeah. So since Cardinal Wilton says, and he's the, the, the Cardinal uh, of uh, Washington, D.C., probably the, one of the most important sees, op, uh, one of the most important uh, apostolic sees here in the United States. Well, St. Paul would take issue with Cardinal Wilton Gregory. St. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, hold fast to the traditions that you were taught 
either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. So Cardinal Gregory is saying tradition is going to die. St. Paul saying hold fast to traditions. St. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 11 too, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So Cardinal Wilton Gregory says that tradition is going to die a slow death. St. Paul says we're called to maintain the traditions. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. St. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our, Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So this is, it seems like St. Paul view has an, a high view of tradition. He's calling us to hold fast to the traditions. <clears throat> He's calling us to maintain the traditions. He's saying to live in accord with the tradition, but yet we have a cardinal, a successor of the apostle, that is saying that tradition is going to die a slow death. Now, I'll be honest. What, yeah. what cardinal Gregory Wilton is saying this, Paul. He's saying the Latin mass is going to die a slow death. That's yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. He just didn't say it. He didn't say it because he didn't want to get the backlash, but that's exactly what he intended to say. Yeah, uh, and I would have to agree with you on that, Jess. But let's not forget the difference between the Catholic, the Holy Catholic Church and Protestantism. And we know that that's the whole issue going on here. The church has been pro Protestantized ever since Vatican II. Paul, you know what? Um, I, can I can respect you saying that because you came in from Protestant after decades. So when you came back into the church, you're looking at it with fresh eyes. I've never left the Catholic Church, so I'm not able to see it as clearly as you are. But you told me that 20 years ago when you came back in, you said, Jess, this is not the same church I left. This is a lot of stuff that I saw at Calvary Chapel and this church and that church. You told me that 20 years ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what we that's what we see. But like I said, the, the, the main difference is, is the two fonts to which we draw truth from in the Catholic Church. One is, in fact, uh, uh, the, the word of God and sacred tradition. You know, so we have both. And so that's what makes us distinctly Catholic. We don't believe in sola scriptura. Right. We, you know, it, it's the tradition, capital T that gives us the complete view of the faith and so when he makes a statement like that it just it can you know it, it portrays his um i hate to say it like there's no disrespect to him but it, it betrays ignorance on the subject i think you're right paul and, and yeah we're saying it respectfully absolutely yeah yeah F philip lawler writes think about it what authority does any bishop have apart from the fact that he represents the sacred tradition of the Catholic Church that he's understood to hold and teach the Catholic faith that comes to us from the apostles, that in fact he's a successor to the apostles. The Second Vatican Council and Dave Verbum taught that sacred scripture and tradition with a capital T, coming from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend towards the same end. Therefore, tradition and scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Together, these two streams of wisdom nourish the Catholic faith, and when belief in that faith declines, so does the tradition with a small t of respect for Catholic leadership. Even in our secularized society, and even after years of scandal, most Americans still, still treat Catholic prelates with at least the outward signs of respect. 
For example, when I returned to my native Boston after several years in different cities, I was struck by the fact that at public meetings, everyone would stand when the Cardinal Archbishop entered the room. At times, I was fully aware that many of those present had nothing but contempt for the Catholic faith and even for the Cardinal personally. Still, they came to their feet as a sign of respect. That deference, too, will die if the tradition is broken. It could literally be a bloody death as the late Cardinal George predicted. You want to pick it up from there, Paul? says, to be fair, but to be fair. Okay, I can't hear Paul, so I'll pick it up. But to yeah, be fair, I... yeah. When he made that remark about tradition, Cardinal Gregory was not speaking of sacred capital T tradition, nor of the local small T traditions, but specifically about the traditional liturgy. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. The Tridentine Mass, the traditional Latin Mass. That's what, the, yeah, that's what Cardinal Gregory Wilton wants to die a slow, bloody death. That's what he was referring yes. to. He just didn't want to say yes. it. He was yes. responding to a guess, question. Yeah, go ahead. He's wrong about he's wrong about that, Jess, because Latin Mass uh, congregations are, are are flourishing all around, and 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 that's where you see nothing but young Catholic families. You see, uh, you know, groups like the SSPX. You know, vocations, plenty of vocations versus. Um, I hate to say it, but the you know, in, uh, parish. Yes, they're, they're dying on the vine. Yeah, yep. It says here he was responding to a question about how students at Catholic University should respond to their classmates who ask why they're not able to practice a TLM here on campus. And that's what's interesting, Paul. All these young Catholics and all these uh, Catholic universities, the Orthodox Catholic universities, they're all clamoring for the Latin Mass. Pope Francis took yes. it away, but these young students are clamoring for the Latin Mass. And that's what yeah. Cardinal Gregory, he was answering one of their questions, and I'm sure he probably felt uncomfortable, uh, but I'll pick it up. It says, in answering that question, Cardinal Gregory made the claim that when Pope Paul VI introduced the Novus Ordo, quote, it was his desire, his intent to say, when that generation goes, then everyone will be in the new Mass, close quote. With Traditionis Custodis, he continued, Pope Francis is trying to complete what Paul VI began, that is, to put one ritual, the new rite, as the dominant rite, but with exceptions, modest exceptions. Comments? You know, yeah, you know, Jess, I remember when Pope Paul VI said the smoke of Satan has entered into the church. That kind of reminds me of Caiaphas, when Caiaphas uh, prophesied, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, Caiaphas was on the obviously on the wrong side of history, and he was, uh, uh, you know, in large part responsible for the crucifixion of our Lord. And uh, yet he prophesied. And I believe that Pope Paul VI, when he talked about the smoke of Satan, um, I, again, now I'm not saying, you know, that, that there's anything inherently evil about, you know, the Novus Ordo mass but uh i'm not going to go that far but i will tell you that uh it opened up um uh it you know when, when masses number one are said in the vernacular it it provides a platform for the individual priests many of them who who have a poor uh found uh, a poor formation of faith it allows them to innovate it allows them, and we've seen it over and over and over again. Sometimes they almost make a spectacle out of something that is so sacred to us as Catholics. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now, here's here's my thoughts on this is that there's I think like there's like three camps of Catholics when it comes to the Latin mass. You have your mm-hmm. hardline Latin mass only Catholics and I know people that are Latin mass only Catholics mm-hmm. they're entrenched in the Latin mass and they're like I there's nothing I'm not going to go to any other mass other than that one. I respect that. Then you have your Novus Ordo Mass entrenched Catholics. Like, I'm never going to the Latin Mass. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. No, not a mm-hmm. chance. So you have that You have that camp too. The entrenched Novus Ordo Mass Catholics are saying, I would never go to Latin Mass. Are you kidding me? We, we, we need to get rid of that. I consider myself part of a third camp. This is a demographic of Catholics. Uh, Scott Hahn's part of that camp. Uh, I just realized that. But what I said, oh, we, we think exactly alike on this issue. My position, Scott Hahn's position, is this. I accept both forms of the Mass. However, as a Catholic, I need to recognize the validity of the Novus Ordo Mass because it was given to us by a Pope. But I also recognize the objective superiority of graces that I receive yes. from the traditional Latin Mass. That's yes, my position. Yes. That's my yes, position. Yes, great position. That's yeah. a great position. And In fact, I, I have that same position. I tell people often... The only way I can describe it is that the Latin Mass is robust, yeah. you know, versus versus the Novus Ordo Mass is anemic, you know, and um, the fullness of the faith, uh, uh, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law prayed is the law believed, is it's always taught, and when we pray the Mass. You get the fullness of the faith in the Latin Mass. Hold that thought, Paul. That- Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Jesus and I will we'll pick it up. We'll continue this topic. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. We're taking a look at Cardinal Gregory Woolton's statements. Uh, he's basically didn't say it, but he intended to say that when he said tradition dies a slow death, sometimes a bloody death, he was referring to the Latin Mass, although he didn't say that. And to, so I'll, I'll be, to, you know, technically he didn't say it, but that was inferred. That's exactly what he's inferring. Uh, the article says here, Paul, take careful note of the adjective the Cardinal used here. The Novus Ordo is the dominant right. No one disputes that dominance. The vast majority of Catholics attend the Novus Ordo. In fact, only a small minority have any experience with the TLM. But does that answer the question of why the TLM cannot be celebrated on a Catholic university campus? It is noteworthy in this context that Cardinal Gregory had come to Catholic university to speak about the value of diversity. The Cardinal Mm -hmm. explained that when he came to Washington as Archbishop, the TLM was available in several places. He, he said, my predecessor, Cardinal Hickey, instituted it here in 1988 in three places. And then all of a sudden it was growing and it was in eight places. He goes, so I went back to the Hickey number. Uh, again, in other words, he reduced it from eight places to three places in his diocese. Again, Cardinal yeah. Gregory's language is revealing. At a time when yeah. mass attendance generally was in decline, the TLM was an exception. All of a sudden it was growing. Why? Here uh, the yeah. Cardinal... Uh, he, here the Cardinal had an answer. He goes, in many of the places where it grew, the Tridentine Rite, it grew because priests promoted it and not because. And then he broke off his sentence and started again. 
He could not go on to say that the people didn't want the TLM because, well, if nobody wanted the TLM, the question would have never been asked. Traditionis custodis would have never, never been written. The whole issue would be moot. But Cardinal Gregory offers a novel theory that the priests alone furnished the support for the TLM. That in a parish where the pastor offered the TLM, he created the need in places where there wasn't a need there for the TLM. That's a lie. It seemed yeah. that Cardinal that it seemed that the Cardinal sides with those economists who believe that supply creates its own demand. But wait, no Catholics required to attend the TLM. Would the pastors have persisted in the traditional liturgy if no one came? Would Catholic families begin traveling long distances to attend the TLM, as many still do, if there wasn't a need there? In a way. Yes, that's all. I'll hold that thought. But, yeah. Let's give a little comment. Go ahead. I'm waiting. Yeah. Listen. Uh, so so it, it it grew. The Latin mass grew from like four to eight. And, and what's his response? Well, let's prune it back. Let's cut it back. <laughs> what kind of response is that? The goal of every bishop is to make as many people Catholics and they get, you know, get the church growing and flourishing everywhere. So when so when the church does this, by the way, in spite of all his efforts and everyone else's efforts who's, uh, of those in authority who are attempting to suppress the Latinists, you cannot stop it. Why? Because... God is the one, sacred scripture says, who causes the growth. You see, man doesn't cause the growth, just God causes the growth. And um, Jesus Christ is the one who is building his church according to sacred scripture. So uh, what you have here, I hate to say it, and I'm going to say it, but what you have here is a bunch of hirelings. It's very easy for me to recognize um, you know, based on a simple knowledge, and I'm nobody in particular, of the Word of God and Catholic uh, uh, ideology, Catholic theology, that way off base. And he's working against, it seems, he's working against, what does sacred scripture tell us, Jess? Do not resist the Holy Spirit. You know, and that's that's what it seems like it's, as the Holy Spirit begins to grow the church. It seems like every opportunity there are those left wing liberal type. Uh, I call them infiltrators or um, or hirelings, uh, not saying a name, but it, if the shoe fits, wear it, who are working against the Holy Spirit of God. We need to pray for them for their conversion, that God would give them eyes to see, that God would give them ears to hear. Yeah, what's interesting, Paul, is that the word blessing, one of the definitions of blessing is growth or or bounty or fruitfulness. And so a lot of these Latin mass parishes, they're growing. That's, that's the definition of a blessing, growth, bount, yes. bount, bountiful, fruitfulness, yes. frugal, frugality, you know. Uh, if if they're growing, that means God is blessing that parish. And what yes. and what are and what are some of the bishops doing that should be happy that they're that that the Catholic Church is growing in some quarters? They're suppressing it. The only quarter of the church that where the Catholic Church is growing and bishops are actively suppressing it. Well, m- most bishops, not all. And and I'll tell mm-hmm. you, 
if you want to see Paul a failed experiment, you know, because I I came up through there and I've seen it in thirty or forty years. The Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which all the U.S. bishops have gotten behind that. Paul, there there is virtually no charismatic conferences in the in the country anymore. I know I know because I was speaking at them like it for about twenty years. I I was like invited mm-hmm. to every charismatic conference in the U.S. to speak. Mm-hmm. Paul, here in Phoenix, we don't even have a charismatic renewal conference anymore. It's, yeah. it's completely yeah. dead. It's different. And yeah. and when you do when you do find some little gathering of charismatic Catholics, you know what you find? Everybody mm. bald and has gray hair. Yes, and Jess, and, and, and I can tell walk, you right. They got walk and they got walkers. And like years ago, Jess, and that uh, bishop, that's what the bishops got behind, and it, yeah. that experiment failed. Yes, Jess, it came from Protestantism once mm-hmm. again, and and guess what? Protestantism does it better, so to speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it was a poor imitation of how these Protestant uh, Pentecostal charismatic churches do it uh again that's a good line that's a good line that's a really good line (laughs) a cheap what'd you say a cheap imitation what'd you go yeah yeah jess jess it's it's a poor imitation listen imitation yeah listen yes jess um that's a fact whether or not they want if you look into history in the catholic church you see anything that resembles that and the answer to that is no Okay, and and if the answer to that is no, where do you see it? You see it uh, uh, being created in the 16, 1700s, 1800s by the Pentecostal churches after Protestantism divided and began to divide. People started interpreting the Scripture every which kind of way, and then the Protestant, and then the Catholic Church, you know, after it's been infiltrated by so many hirelings and so forth decided wow that looks good look at all those people when you see a guy like joe osteen uh on and you say wow look at this it's just a sea of people what does he have and it makes these people let me tell you something i would rather empty a church fully crowded like that and fill it with 10 righteous uh people who understood and know the truth versus a multitude of people who have who are there for all the wrong reasons, who are there hearkening to a false gospel. Amen. Let me just mention one last thing about uh, the first mass. I would say that the first mass, or, or, or should I say the archetype of the first mass was consummated at Calvary. And mm. guess what? It was done. There was a lot of Latin that was being used at that first mass. Think about that. Roman soldiers... A lot of them, and the Bible actually says, like in Mark 15, 39, a lot of Roman soldiers came to faith in Christ, and they professed their faith in Christ and believed in Christ, and guess what language? They looked at Jesus on the cross, the archetype of the first mass, and they were praying and confessing Jesus' name in Latin. Very interesting, huh? So how old does the Latin mass go? I would, I would argue... The Latin liturgy goes back to Calvary because many of the first followers were Roman soldiers like St. Longinus and many other soldiers that came to faith in Christ. And they were praying to Christ at the foot of the cross as he was dying. They were praying to him in Latin. 
yeah. and that's why you know. Uh, and so I'm just saying for somebody, uh, English wasn't being prayed there, nor was Spanish, nor was Chinese, nor was Russian. Okay. The people that were praying to, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, there was three languages. The Jews were praying in Hebrew, and we still pray in Hebrew at Mass. The, 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 the word Amen is Hebrew, period. You can't change. It's not English. It's not Spanish. It's Hebrew. Uh, Alleluia. That's Greek. Kyrieleison. Kyrieleison. That's Greek. Uh, and, and so the, the Latin Mass, uh, Hosanna, that's Hebrew. The Latin Mass has all three biblical languages that are found on Calvary. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jess, you know I'm the type. Uh, I've seen it over and over again when, when somebody who's only been attending a Novus Ordo uh, Mass, when they come to the Latin Mass and they see um, the reverence, they see everything is just in its proper place. They see the incense, especially a high Latin mass. They, they, their head spins. They're like, wow. It's almost like they've never seen anything like it. That's the reaction that they get. And guess what? Nine times out of ten, they all want to come back. Why? Because you are drawn in. You understand it. Oh, I get it now. This is how God is worshipped. And all you have to do is put the two masses side by side. And you t and any anybody can just give a an opinion and tell you which one is more honoring if you were God. Which one would would uh, like I said, the simple uh, uh, aesthetics of the mass. We're not just talking about the Latin language and the fact that they can't innovate. We're talking the whole thing. It's the whole enchilada. And, yeah. and, 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 and the fact that, the, you know, the law prayed is the law believed. Well, um, guess what? Those Catholics in the Latin mass, not all of them, but most tend to know their faith versus, I would say, the large majority that I know that, that attend Novus only parishes they don't know their faith now are there some of course that i'm talking fair, that's about. a fair uh, absolutely fair statement yeah absolutely yeah. yeah without a doubt well that's a wrap brothers and sisters in christ hope you're having a happy holy advent keep your eyes on jesus uh we're going to be entering the christmas season in a few short days uh jesus christ is the reason for the season make sure you have your christmas lights out your christmas tree and uh make sure your neighbors know that your household, as for you and your household, you will serve the Lord. That's a wrap. Gary Machud up next. Hands-on apologetics. See you guys next time. We are EOW End of Watch. Out.